3: I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on ZibiBooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zippy Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zippymag.com. We have classes at zippyclasses.com, And I recently opened a book
0: Safia was born and raised in Montego Bay, Jamaica. She is the author of How to Say Babylon, forthcoming from Simon & Schuster. She is also the author of the poetry collection Cannibal, winner of a Whiting Writers Award, the American Academy of Arts and Letters Metcalf Award, the OCM Bocas Prize for Caribbean Poetry, the Phyllis Wheatley Book Award, and the Prairie Schooner Book Prize in Poetry. Cannibal was selected as one of the American Library Association's Notable Books of the Year and was a finalist for the Penn Center USA Literary Award and the Seamus Heaney First Book Award in the UK, and was long-listed for the Penn Open Book Award and the Dylan Thomas Prize. Sinclair's other honors include a Pushcart Prize, fellowships from the Poetry Foundation— Civitella Ranieri Foundation, the Elizabeth George Foundation, McDowell, Yaddo, the Breadloaf Writers Conference, and the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown. Her work has appeared in the New Yorker, Granta, The Nation, Poetry, Kenyon Review, the Oxford American, and elsewhere. She received her MFA in poetry at the University of Virginia and her PhD in literature and creative writing from the University of Southern California. She is currently an associate professor of creative writing at Arizona State University. Welcome, Sophia. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss How to Save Babylon, a memoir.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: I have to ask, so people listening can't see, but Sophia's fingernails are painted perhaps the same
2: shade as her book cover. (laughs)
0: Intentional or not intentional?
2: Very intentional. (laughs) I happened to have a a photo shoot a couple weeks ago and I was like, I'm intentional all the way down to the nails. So let me, you know,
1: Oh Let me my god.
2: something a little interesting, you know. <laughs> well, wow.
0: well, seeing you here and I'll try to share a clip of this on YouTube or something, but it's a far cry from the way you you describe yourself at different parts of the book from when you, your teeth were a crumbled mess in your mouth and you're being so in, you know ashamed about your appearance in front of your classmates and just from that to see you like sitting here look just so perfect like you're a model it's amazing it's just like an amazing end to like the experience of reading the memoir and then meeting you here on zoom
2: (laughs) well it was you know it was quite a journey to get to that place because i think for so long in my life i felt that i was being kind of outcast and like diminished by so many people, you know, by my teachers at school, by my classmates, because I had dreadlocks. And then when I was at home by my father, because I was, you know, a girl, and because I also questioned a lot of the rules and a lot of what comprised Rastafari in my household. And so I felt small for a long time. And I had to retrace that journey in the book as well. And then to get to the place of feeling like, yes, I want to celebrate my womanhood and my femininity instead of being diminished by it, um, which is how I felt for much of my adolescence. Wow. Oh, my gosh. You write in a very
0: raw, brutal, just so vivid details about the experience of um, some of the most difficult scenes with your father. And I, I don't mean to paint him in any, you know, everybody has stuff with their families in all yeah. sorts of different ways. But I will say as, as literature, you write as scenes in a book, they come through as really, I mean, it's hard not to read without feeling so deeply, especially the scene when you felt your mother was not on your side for once. How did it feel writing about all of this and having to relive it? Because that couldn't
2: have been easy it was not easy at all. You know, I, um, I kind of had to brace myself in the writing of it. Like there were certain scenes and certain chapters that I knew ahead of time, like, okay, deep breaths, meditation, make sure you like go into this with like a strong spirit. And there were times when I was writing the first draft where I was like, at the type like typing and weeping at the same time. And I was just like, okay, I just have to push through, just keep going. You know, weep through it and get to the end. So you know, it was difficult and part of I wanted the reader to feel almost skin close. I wanted the reader to feel that I wasn't just telling what what happened from a distance, but I wanted you to kind of be there and feel it in a narrative way. And so to do that, I really had to go into detail. I had to remember the scenes and the dialogue. I had to, you know, kind of express what I was feeling. And and that includes reliving it, you know? And then, of course, I had to edit it like... (laughs) You know, if someone had told me that I was going to have to read reread everything like 10, 15, 20 times, <laughs> I might have rethought this because, the, you know, it's one thing like the first writing of it, but then like editing it. And then revising it. And then again, you know, it's like, and I'm the copy editor. And I was like, oh my goodness. And then I, I recorded the audiobook a month ago. I was just about to ask if you had recorded it yet. <laughs> that was a whole other thing that I was, I did not know what I was getting myself into when I agreed to do it. That it wasn't just, you know, narrating the book, but it was also like. Well, I want to do it well, so I have to, like, change my voice a little bit or give the characteristic of my father, my brother, my mother, and then also voice or in some ways really act out a lot of those scenes that were some of the most harrowing of my life. But I think that's the last time I I really have to return to any of those, so I think the catharsis is over, hopefully. (laughs) I remember I recorded
0: my audiobook. I wrote a memoir called Bookends. Anyway, and in it, I talked about people who I loved and had lost. And there was this one passage and I started reading and I was crying. I think it was about losing my grandmother or something. Anyway, and they were like, they paused and they're like, okay, just take that one again from the top. Yes. And I'm like, I'm like, I literally just read this and burst into tears. Like, I can't do that again. Like really right now? You know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> so anyway, but I had fair warning from the many authors who had warned me that it would be.
2: <laughs> I had warnings too, or and people who are even like, "Are you sure mm-hmm. you want to record the audiobook?" And I was like, "Yes." <laughs> yeah. And it's one thing to be forewarned, and one thing to be sitting in the booth and kind of like, yeah, refacing everything, yeah. you know. But then didn't you have a minute? Didn't you have a minute
0: where you were like, maybe I could be an audiobook narrator for a job? Did you have that?
2: No. <laughs> no. I was like, I'll never do this ever again. <laughs> okay, never mind. i was like, I'll give it my all. I'll probably never even listen to it, honestly, Zubi. Like, I'm like, giving it my all. And I hope it's, you know, a compelling listen, but that's it for me. <laughs> One and done. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well,
0: part of what makes the book so powerful is that you create characters that are so vivid out of people who are real and in your life, right? Like your mom becomes... A true character. And one of the pieces I loved about her, and I just want to read this like line or two, if that's okay, about yes. your mom, who you sp- wrote about with such reverence, right? And she started this whole education thing, really. I mean, it's amazing. Anyway, you said, "...on her darkest days, it was always books that gave my mother's world a clear sort of hope. She couldn't leave, but she could still escape." She would rummage through the rubbish bins of the adjacent hotels on the beach, looking for old books left behind by tourists, their pages stained with discarded coffee grinds and fruit peels. Into their pages she went, always searching for something greater. So great. I love the role of books in your mom's life and in yours, and then that you became a writer. Tell me more about your mom and her, you know, devotion to education and helping literacy and helping so many kids and all of that.
2: Oh my goodness. I mean... I just feel so lucky and blessed that she was my mom. You know, I think I wouldn't be a writer today if it weren't for her. I wouldn't be a poet if it weren't for her. Because she had this love of literature her whole life. And she would always tell me that it was something that made her world more expansive, even when she lived in a place or lived under circumstances that would make her world actually feel small. Mm -hmm. You know, literature was the thing that really gave her a keen sense of hope. And she believes in education as like, I don't know, as, as citizenship, you know, for a long time, she would teach her classes for free because she just thought that it was her civic duty, that she just wanted to help everybody that she could through through learning and through through reading. Um, And she, yeah, she devised her own program, her own methods, her tools of teaching that she like used on me and my siblings. And then everyone was like, oh my God, like what's the secret? And then she was like, okay, like you could come over and I can like teach your children as well. And she even had an an adult component where she would teach the parents of the children, like this is how you go about, you know, expanding the world. For your children through reading, through recitation of poems, through songs, through, you know, walking through nature, appreciation of nature. And all of those, all of those things, all of those are the tools she gave me to become a poet. You -hmm. know, looking back on it later, like she, she handed me my first book of poems. She would have me and my siblings like memorize and recite poems. She would take us on nature walks through you know, the the countryside, and she would, like, point out to me the name of every plant, every flower, every insect I would see, and From there came my love of the landscape and the natural world. And there bloomed my poetry and then my love of literature. And I I can tell you, nobody is a bigger fan of my work than my mother. Like she will sit in the front row of my readings and I will look down and I'll see her like mouthing the words of the poems. That's (laughs) so sweet. I know. And she'll just be like, I just can't believe I have my own personal poet. (laughs) so you know if nothing else I am her personal poet
0: (laughs) oh my gosh you need to put it on a pillow or something you know like give her a little tote bag you know (laughs) courtesy of your personal poet
2: Exactly.
0: (laughs) Uh Well, the journey to becoming a poet was also rife with unexpected twists and turns in your life and your relationship with the old poet who you don't name, I'm assuming very intentionally and having a mentor who ends up, you know, taking a a turn you prefer not to take. I'm trying to say it nicely without giving things away, but, but, you know, there's also a sense of real loss that you feel reading those parts that you really trusted him and that sense of like just deep almost grief over what you thought you had and then was lost again I don't know if that's how you experienced it but
2: it was and you know it was also a very confusing thing for a 17 year old to kind of process right because there was so much good in it you know, at the beginning where he was someone who mentored me in poetry and he was a person that made me feel like what I had to say was worthwhile for the very first time, you know. And so having this happen at 16, 17, after growing up in this kind of very repressive household where I was being molded into someone who was supposed to be obedient and pliant and silent, you know, these mm-hmm. were the virtues of a Rasta woman. And I, you know, kind of questioned that and poetry was the place where I really first found my voice and cultivated that voice and that self, that. The person I could become in the future and so when I met him I I did feel that I was validated as as a poet for the first time that yes I should continue this thing and this is what I have to say is important and I should say it and then you know having this kind of betrayal which is you know not uncommon for so many of us and you know thinking about all the different ways that the patriarchy kind of is insidious and kind of reaches even things that you thought were pure and untouchable. Kind of become tainted and, and destroyed in some ways by these kind of patriarchal, you know, views and mm-hmm. actions. Um, I'm also trying not to give it all away. Yeah, okay, we can you know, we can like, keep going. <laughs> but I don't know. I, I mean, I could talk more and more about it. But I did want when I was writing it, the reader to feel this the same sense of. Kind of shocking and crushing betrayal that I felt like at Mm -hmm. first it was like, wow, full of wonderment and excitement and purity. And then this moment where everything shifted and I was reduced again, not to my mind, but to my body Mm. was a moment that was really hard for me. And one that I couldn't even come to terms with until like a few years later with time and distance and really thinking about what happened and that it wasn't okay. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for twenty percent off your first purchase. That's bombus.com slash ACAST, code
1: ACAST.
0: You know, there's so much in the book about, you know, what is the role of the outsider of the family, not the outsider, but what is the role of somebody who notices when something untoward is happening? Is there a role for that person? I mean, there's the example with your mom, with the little boys who showed up with cigarette burns all over him and then never showed up again, him and his brother. It's like, what, what is, how can anyone help? What are we all to do when we see these things? And like, what is the reader to take away from this at the end? Are we to stand by and listen to stories or mistreatment of, of women or anybody boy whatever like what are we supposed to do with all of this? like what do you want people to take away
2: um that's a good question you know, I think sometimes it's it's hard or it feels overwhelming to think about these different questions of abuse and of violence and what to do as an observer. I don't know what's the answer to that, you know I think we would all feel like, Stepping in in whatever ways we can is the best course of action. You know, like with those those young boys, my mom, we searched for them. We tried to find where they'd gone, but we never found them. But I think from my side where I was also a person who was, you know, a victim of different kinds of abuse, you know, for a long time, as I was saying before, I couldn't even process or come to terms with it. And then, when I finally started to come to terms with it and went on my own journey of, of healing, my, the thing I wanted most was to find a path, particularly for my family and my father, a path to forgiveness, if mm-hmm. there was one, if it was possible. Because I knew I couldn't write the book if I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. I couldn't, I didn't want to write the book if I was still hurting in the way that I was hurting when I left home mm-hmm. you know I yeah. think it would have been a different book if I'd written it out of that hurt and out of that wound I needed a place of distance I needed you know what my professor called a place of safety mm. and I think that's what I wish for anyone who's in this who's in this similar position is a place of safety you know and what in whatever ways we can help to offer that yeah I think is part of what we can do in these situations you know yeah how does the rest of your family feel
0: about the book like how about especially your siblings
2: you know they haven't read it what <laughs> yes i know they they all have the have copies but as far as i know they haven't read it you know my i think my my brother's wife read it and told him told it to him my sister ife you know she I think everybody's on their own journeys to healing and processing. Mm -hmm. You know, mine might be this strange way of actually like (laughs) writing it down (laughs) and sharing it with the entire world. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, everybody else is, dealing with it in their own ways. And I have to respect that as, mm-hmm. as much as I can. You know, they, they've they all said they're proud of me. And um, they've read like the short excerpts, you know, like they, they all had to read the New Yorker excerpt because the fact checker called them and asked them every single thing about their life. So, <laughs> you know, they all read that. So they have some sense of it. And strangely enough, my father asked me if he could read it. Hmm. And this was the first time he'd ever asked me to read anything I had written. And so three weeks ago, I was home in Jamaica and I gave him a copy of the book. And so I think of all my family, he's the only one who is actually reading the book. (laughs) You know, were you nervous about that? I was, but I think that I tried my best to give everybody grace Mm -hmm. and to write with a kind of nuance that might. But, you know, that he would come across as a complex and flawed human, mm-hmm. but not a cartoon villain, you mm-hmm. know, and, and that I wanted some moment at the end of, you know, an opportunity for hope or an opportunity for a change in the future or some kind of catharsis. Like I wanted the book in some ways to try to break these cycles of trauma, if I could, if it could. Yep be some kind of currency for change and healing in my family and so you know yeah it gave me and my father the opportunity to actually talk to each other in like a very real way for the first time so I think we're all it's already giving me that first step towards whatever healing might come oh my gosh wow
0: So what comes after this now? And (laughs) you're going to go on, I'm sure, this whirlwind tour. And, you know, where do you want this to go? What more, what writing projects do you want to tackle next? Like
2: what's, what's on the horizon? So I, I really was looking forward to turning back to poetry and writing some poems, Mm -hmm. but I'm also working on a novel which is, you know, under contract with my publisher. And so I'm sure they're going to be asking the same question <laughs> at some point. I imagine like January 1st, like, hey, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> but, you know, I'm working on this novel. It's a multi generational novel about that kind of traces 600 years of Jamaican history, beginning with the arrival of Columbus. In the fifteenth century, and the decimation of the native Taíno people in Jamaica, mm. um, and then we kind of follow six different women through six different, you know, periods in Jamaican history, starting with Columbus's arrival, with slavery, with Jamaica's independence, with the revolution of the seventies, and um, it ends in the near future by the seaside, where you know we're kind of facing the oncoming climate apocalypse. Wow. Gosh, oncoming climate apocalypse. Nice and light
0: thought there for this afternoon.
2: (laughs) I'm not making it easy for myself, am I?
0: (laughs) Are you going to be doing any of book marketing in Jamaica?
2: Yes, I I would, uh, you know, I'm really excited to do some things in Jamaica. I really want to go around to high schools in the parish Mm -hmm. and, you know, share some books and maybe do like some workshops with the students there. You know, I want to give back and I want to like reach that young Jamaican girl who's kind of imagining she might be a writer, but it feels so far fetched. Mm-hmm. That she can't imagine as a reality. I want to reach her and see her and say, "It's possible." You know, keep going, keep writing. That's so amazing. I'm, I'm looking forward. That's awesome. What are you reading? What do you like to read? I have been reading Nana Kwame Ajibrenia's, um new novel called "Chain Gang All Stars," mm-hmm. which is really fantastic. You know the way he's writing about the carceral system, about the prison industrial complex in in the US, but told through this really interesting dystopian near future kind of frame where we're thinking about how, I'm thinking about American TV and, and violence and so on. It's a really great book. And so I'm savoring that one. And I just finished reading a poetry collection called The Ferguson Report, An Erasure. By Nicole Seeley. I have to give, you have to give a little shout out to a poet because, you know, my roots is poetry. This book is amazing. She takes the Ferguson Report, which was commissioned by the Department of Justice after uh, Mike Brown's death in Ferguson, Missouri. And she, through her erasure, kind of makes something kind of like startling dazzling new it, it complicates our ideas of you know of racism of police violence of you know the history of black people in america and but she's taking all of that all of that traumatic past and present and thinking about the future a future that leans toward hope mm and toward wonder. And this that kind of afrofuturist desire yearning for a future of possibility is something that I really love and this book does that. So those are two books that have been really feeding my soul. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Do you have what's your biggest
0: like procrastination technique? Like when you're in the middle of doing stuff you have to do for work or writing or something you don't want to do, like what is it? Do you snack? Do you watch? Do you Instagram? Like, what is your thing? What are your things?
2: It's so bad. It's so bad. I don't even know if I should say it. Yes, you should say it. I do. I do shop. I go shopping. Okay. <laughs> or I do like online shopping where I just sort of start imagining like outfits and clothes. <laughs> That's not so bad. I thought you were
0: going to say you had like a oh I don't know a secret goodness. gambling addiction. Where I don't know what you were going to say. Oh my goodness! <laughs> no, that's
2: my biggest procrastination. <laughs> 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 and then sometimes I try to like um, justify it. Well, a little, a little like you know, I could be wearing this to an event or reading. So. I'm doing something that's actually. Yeah, <laughs> like, this was going to end up on my to-do list at some point. Anyway, exactly. <laughs> you know. But that's definitely up there. Uh, <laughs> procrastination. <laughs> oh, it's so funny.
0: Okay. Well, what is your parting advice for aspiring authors?
2: I'll say the same thing I tell my students. Read everything. Read widely. Read everything you can get your hands on. Not just, you know, not just novel, not just fiction, read poetry, read science, read nature books, read philosophy, read theory. I think as a writer, that is something that only ever help me get better or make my work more complicated or to see who I'm in dialogue with or to see what writers are on my family tree. Like, where does your work bloom from? It comes from reading deeply and widely and, you know, sort of nourishing the writer's soul and the muse through reading. And then I'd also say, give the advice that my own eight-year-old self, when asked by the Jamaican press what advice I had for <laughs> other... <laughs> other children she said you just can't give up <laughs> and so I, I i say that also to writers you know it is hard work but don't give up amazing
0: Sophia thank you so much this was wonderful thank you for sharing you. bearing your soul on the page and for chatting with me
2: today it was so lovely talking with you thank you thank you good luck with everything